LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is the next big idea. Today, the 2,000 year old case for hedonism. Do you like pain? It's a funny question. Who likes pain? Most of us, I think, would say that some suffering is part of a good life, and we admire those who suffer well. There was a saying in the 1980s when I was growing up, no pain, no gain, a workout mantra immortalized by Jane Fonda. But some quipster put no pain, no pain on a bumper sticker, and I remember thinking, that's more like it. Must we be masochists? On the one hand, you might say that masochism is a clever adaptation to a world in which suffering is inevitable. If we're gonna feel pain, we may as well learn to like it. We've also learned that a certain amount of discomfort resets our hedonic set point and makes pleasure more readily available. I learned this from fascinating conversations with Anna Lemke and Paul Bloom in two of my favorite episodes in the last few years. On the other hand, a reasonable case can be made that we celebrate masochism to a degree that's unhealthy. Embrace suffering in this life so you might enter the kingdom of heaven in the next one. Our priests have been telling us this for millennia in what smacks of a scam to keep peasants toiling the fields and tithing the church. For those of us uncertain of our future in the kingdom of heaven, it might make sense to optimize for joy a little sooner. We are, after all, animals whose experiences of pleasure and pain have evolved over millions of years. The stuff that feels good feels good for a reason. Not just sex and eating, which are helpful for obvious reasons, but the joy of friendship, the pleasure of moving our bodies outside in nature, building things of value, treating each other with kindness. Among my favorite conversations on the show was a discussion with Antonio Damasio about the evolution of feelings. It turns out those gut feelings we have, sometimes good, sometimes bad, reflect a sophisticated pattern recognition, a kind of somatic intelligence communicated through sensations in our bodies. So maybe doing what feels good is not just natural, but smart. There is mounting evidence in the many books we read for the Next Big Idea Club that people who are generous, people who make sacrifices for others, are happier. Cynics say this means There's no such thing as truly selfish behavior. Everything we do, we do to feel good. I say the question of motives is a distraction. Aren't we lucky to live in a world in which kindness is rewarded and in which the greedy and self-serving are people who haven't yet figured out how to be happy? This, I believe for some years now, is both a more useful framing for understanding human behavior and a more accurate one based on the latest science. A few weeks ago, I thought this was a fresh take, but then I listened to Emily Austin's Book Bite. That's a book summary on our Next Big Idea app for her new book, Living for Pleasure, An Epicurean Guide to Life. And I discovered, much to my surprise, that Epicurus, the ancient Greek philosopher, figured all this out more than 2,300 years ago. 
Born in 341 BCE, Epicurus spent most of his life on the outskirts of Athens in a compound called the Garden, where he and his followers ate and drank and talked endlessly about the pursuit of happiness. Their quiet little idol was the subject of many obscene rumors. One gossip said Epicurus hosted 10 course feasts every night. Another claimed the philosopher had 18 orgasms in succession in a bed full of virgins. His rivals, the Stoics, cast him as the villainous promoter of unchecked desire. In reality, Epicurus's life was far less debauched. He owned just two cloaks and subsisted mostly on bread and olives. His only vice, it seems, was a fondness for cheese. The pleasures he sought, the pleasures that gave shape and color to his life, were simple ones. Food, shelter, scientific inquiry, and above all, friendship. Because pleasure, as Epicurus understood it, wasn't about carnality. It was the small joys that emerge in the absence of anxiety. In a word, tranquility. It's a refreshingly modern perspective. Why have so few people heard of it? My hope is that this conversation with Emily Austin, a philosophy professor at Wake Forest and unabashed Epicurean, can change that. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. Emily Austin, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks for having me. Emily, I am just delighted that we're talking on the 20th of January. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. It seems appropriate, right? Because Epicurus and his followers living about 300 years before Christ in a lovely community called the Garden, just outside the gates of Athens, chose to celebrate life on the 20th of every month just because, as I understand it, right? They just celebrated on the 20th of every month. Is that right? That's right. They called it the, well, it gets translated as the 20th or it's like a kegger. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, let's talk about the school of philosophy they created, Epicureanism. How would you summarize it in, in a few sentences? Well, one of the things that's great about Epicureanism is he thought philosophy should be very practical. And so he thought philosophy wasn't worth doing almost unless it diminished people's anxiety or made their life go well. And so Epicureanism is fundamentally a philosophy about making your life go better. And he thought that because we're just like other animals, in some sense, we, we make sense of the world through pleasure and pain. And what it is for life to go well for us, for him, is to have pleasure and avoid pain. And so he, he was what's called a hedonist. So he thought the good was pleasure and the bad was pain. And he didn't mean this in a kind of debauched sense, although he did think pleasure made life good. So he he was very committed to the idea that what we should do is put pleasure front and center in our life and we should prioritize it. But one of the main things that keeps us from doing that is that we are sort of racked by anxiety. So in some sense, the the starting point for Epicureanism is to clear out that background noise, the stuff that makes us anxious and gets in the way of the pleasure that we really want. And so the fundamental aim is to make it the case that you live a good, satisfied life that's filled with pleasures that you select prudently. It's such an interesting perspective. And I think the word pleasure 
is a bit misleading, isn't it? Uh, and, and the way people think about hedonism, because their definition of pleasure, as I understand it, is nuanced in a number of ways, in that it was not just physical pleasure, but also psychological. They saw friendship and community as arguably the number one source of pleasure. They believed in maximizing pleasure for the community, and they privileged long-term pleasure or gratification or satisfaction, right? So, so uh, as you say, I think, I think the conventional set of assumptions people have when they hear the word hedonism are that it's all about short-term physical pleasure, which is really not at all the way that Epicurus and his followers uh, saw the world. So it's true that one of the misconceptions about Epicureanism, one of the ones that's most common is, you know, that they're foodies or debauched gluttons or people who are sex, drugs, and rock and roll hedonists. And, and that's clearly not true. But I feel like some defenders of Epicureanism tend to overcorrect. And so they say, right, oh, right. no, he's not about <laughs> yeah, sex, drugs, yeah. and rock and roll. He actually can live on bread and water alone and, and you know, doesn't enjoy or relish any of the kinds of pleasures we think of when we think about everyday pleasures. And, and that's definitely not true either. So it's, it's more of a middle ground. So it's true that he's not a sex, drugs, and rock and roll hedonist, but he does think there are a lot of available pleasures that are ready at hand and simple and that are accessible to us all the time if we privilege them. And those aren't about eating bread and water. And of course, Epicurus really liked cheese, as I understand it, right? <laughs> yeah, and he, he, would, he did. So if we're celebrating with a little Gruyere or uh, and glass of wine, he would he would heartily approve. He would heartily approve, and I do think that that's one way in which my book differs from some other accounts of Epicureanism. And I did vet it with other Epicurus scholars, and I'm very committed to the interpretation which is that he really did think there were a lot of pleasures that were available to us uh, as individuals that we should prioritize as long as they don't cause us a great deal of anxiety. So yes, he loved cheese and, and they celebrated every 20th and they celebrated his birthday. And actually one of our sources says that the Epicurean will have more fun at public festivals than anyone else. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. uh, so it's clear yeah. that there was a... a kind of intense joy to living as an mm. Epicurean, but it wasn't yeah. what I guess we'll call, or I'll discuss later, as corrosive. So it was yes. it was a yes. very um, a prudent, uh, it did focus, as you said, on the long term. So what you want is uh, pleasure over the duration. And it was very communal. So a lot of the best pleasures for Epicurus were pleasures we have with friends. Well, Emily, I want to admit here on the front end that I think your project of rehabilitating Epicureanism is important. I have a dog in this hunt. <laughs> I, I think it would be good for everyone if we replace our reverence for Stoicism with a reverence for Epicureanism. Uh, so I've been persuaded by your book on this front. To me, it reads as a more useful and accurate way of understanding the world and a better approach to living. And it's what's amazing is how contemporary and relevant all of these teachings are. Uh, it delivers great advice on how to cultivate friendship, learn and grow through frank speech, address our fear of death, and on and on. What we can learn from science about how to live better, which, which is really uh, th this kind of science of human flourishing has been a focus of ours at the Next Big Idea Club and really of, of, of many psychologists in the last many decades. And so I feel like the time is right to rehabilitate <laughs> Epicureanism. So I just want to confess on the front end that I am in your camp here with what I think is an important exercise. 
Well, that's that's great. I think I have a dog, maybe the same dog in the same hunt. So I think that it is time for people to at least take Epicureanism seriously as a contender. There, there are reasons I think that um, some people will just be more naturally drawn to Stoicism. But I think that many of the people currently drawn to Stoicism actually should probably consider Epicureanism, and they would if they knew more about it. So I, I at least think that it needs to be out there as a as a contender and a contender that I I prefer, obviously. So expanding on this core idea that humans are driven by pleasure, Epicurus really saw this in a very sophisticated scientific way and in in a way that has really been supported by the last century of scientific discovery in a way that's kind of extraordinary, right? I mean, I think his core thesis is we are animals like other animals, right? Which was an anticipation of Darwin, which is in and of itself extraordinary. And we're motivated by the desire to feel good, which today would be a basic kind of behavioralist point of view. You know, why did we evolve sentient experiences of pleasure and pain? Well, in order to guide us to make good decisions. And this was a a very sophisticated and prescient perspective. Yeah, it was. And in fact, actually, it really is a kind of proto-evolutionary account. It's it's uh, the animals that surround us are the animals that proved the fittest in a fight for survival. And uh, Lucretius, who is a, a Roman poet, he's one of our main sources for Epicureanism, he gives an entire account of the kind of evolution of human social life. He takes himself to be operating from this assumption that we're animals just like other animals. And so we navigate the world on the basis of pleasure and pain. And, and we have these souped up capacities, right? Our brains mm-hmm. make it possible yeah. for us to see ourselves in time so we can mm-hmm, we, we're mm-hmm. beings with a past yep. and a present and a future and so we can learn from the past we can reflect on what's happening now and we can plan for the future and so we are like other animals in that we we navigate the world through pleasure and pain but we can use our souped up brains to do that prudently um, and that's I think the the way that Epicurean hedonism becomes human we have this now, I don't want to say magisterial because that makes it sound like it's, you know, remarkable, but it is it is a set of capacities that human beings have that other animals don't. And, and that's what makes prudence possible for us. And, and it's why these more sophisticated pleasures, these cognitive pleasures or uh, psychological pleasures are available to us. But it's also true that these psychological pains are available to us that mm, are not available yeah. to other animals. And so yeah. part of the Epicurean project is helping us manage these special capacities that we have to cause ourselves anxiety uh, about things that are not actually occurring and also to deprive ourselves of pleasure. So he wants to help us you know, manage pleasure and pain, not just on a physical level, but on that psychological level. Our scientific understanding of how we respond to feelings has become much more sophisticated in, in recent decades. We, we had the great pleasure of having Antonio Damasio, who's a neuroscientist who's been studying uh, throughout his career, the evolution of human feelings and the, and the neuroscience and neurochemistry of human feelings, which also are in the gut. Right. And making the case that we are animals that are attracted to pleasurable feelings. It's not just an argument that we're, you know, we want roast beef and sex. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's much more than that, that we would like, uh, or, or cheese, or for, <laughs> I don't mean to be uh, overly carnivorous there, but rather that, you know, we have evolved to experience bad feelings when people exclude us 
uh, because we are social creatures who rely upon collaboration and friends to survive in the world. So, I mean, so there, there's a huge, there's a lot of nuance and sophistication to this kind of orchestra of feelings that we all experience. And and really, as I read it, Epicurus was was anticipating two thousand years earlier that that yes, we are we are pleasure seeking animals. This is how we've evolved effectively, and understanding this scientific condition in which we exist is helpful to better navigate the world. And part of that is understanding that it's not just about us as individuals, it's about connecting with friends and community. Right, exactly. In some sense, because we are animals and because we are aware of our own experience more immediately than other people's, he he does think that, um, you know, we get, we become social in part because uh, it makes us feel good, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it, it it makes us feel more secure. We have needs, and to have other people around to help us meet those needs is reassuring. Um, and we have these desires even to feel needed. And so, I, you're right that I think that he he thinks this all comes out of the kind of creatures we are, and we're creatures who are. Um, not self-sufficient, and we are vulnerable. And so a lot of Epicureanism is figuring out how to deal with that vulnerability strategically so that you get the good feelings that come from social life without the bad feelings that come from social life. Well, and 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 again, a lot of the scientific literature and scientific research in the last 50 years has kind of backed up this perspective. You know, Richard Dawkins wrote this book, The Selfish Gene, which argues that altruism is an illusion. You know, we engage in selfish acts to protect our lineage. More recently, neuroscientists have done studies where they've hooked people up to MRIs and have them perform supposedly selfish acts like making anonymous charitable donations. And what they found is those activities give people a hit of dopamine um, which calls into question, what's the true motivation? Are, are we being authentically altruistic or pleasure-seeking? But arguably, that distinction is is almost a semantic one. Yeah, the I think that's is, true. Right? right? I mean, I mean, it's it's I mean, we can see in my mind, it's a beautiful thing that interacting with other people in the world in a way that's generous and kind makes you feel good. That <laughs> that is uh that that's a sort of a beautiful characteristic of our experience. No, it's nice that they dovetail together like that. And and I do think there's been this impulse to say something like, oh no, if we're if we're in it for pleasure, then there's almost like it almost seems like some people think that means we're not doing it to benefit other people. And so I do think you're right that they come together and and that's kind of the beauty of the way we evolved actually. What I'm trying to do in the course of this exchange is to persuade people, hopefully listening, that we need not see hedonism as some kind of, you know, selfish and narrow view of the world. Uh, it's it's really a more scientifically accurate view of the world as we understand it today. But what Epicurus didn't know is that several hundred years after after he passed, Christianity would emerge and would preach that we should give up pleasure today for pleasure in the next life, which strikes me, I don't know what your view, Emily, but as a somewhat anti-Epicurean philosophy, um, yeah. you know, this view that this view that virtue and self-sacrifice and masochism to some degree are the same, right? Uh, I mean, that we that we achieve virtue by experiencing pain. And I have a personal view that the explanation provided by Epicurus and 
some folks today might call it altruistic hedonism, is both more accurate and more useful. Because if we see virtuous people as those who suffer more pain for others, which is sort of the Christian view, we see the less virtuous as selfish and unworthy. And this can lead to judgment and moral superiority. Like, I am morally superior to you because you are a selfish jerk. But if, on the other hand, we see unethical people, people we might call greedy or selfish, as people who have not yet figured out how to be happy, these people are not wise. They need help finding a path to greater happiness. I think this is a much more effective message, right? Right. <laughs> right? As opposed to saying, you're morally inferior, you are inadequately masochistic. That's not a very convincing argument, but you haven't discovered how to be happy. We can help you. That, that to me, is, is, is really central to Epicurus's message, arguably. Yeah, it's very central to it. And, and you're right that, you know, obviously he did, he died well before Christianity, but many of the things that you're mentioning about Christianity were things that he explicitly opposed. Mm, so yeah. um, he did think that there was no afterlife. And he he thought that um, the idea that we should deny ourselves things for some postmortem reward or punishment um, was pernicious. So it wasn't just that, you know, uh, some people have a false view to this effect, but that right. He thought it was it was bad for you to have that view. In fact, it, it actually uh, diminished your happiness. And and interestingly, he actually also thought that was impious. So he thought having that view about the gods was actually incorrect as well. But he definitely thought that the way that you sell Epicureanism, so to speak, is to say we we all want to live a good life, and mm, we all want to no. feel this way about our lives. And, and in fact, we often know that, um, but we're not doing the things we need to do to get the things that we all agree we want. And if you if you have buy-in already from people uh, mm -hmm. about certain things that they want, you know, like friends, then I think you're on a much better footing to convince them of something. Right? So you want friends. Here's how Epicurus says that you can get them. So it's not That's to right. convince you that you're, you know, you you don't care about the right things. It's to say you do care about happiness and you're just going about it in a way that's maybe not to your advantage. Right, right. No, I, th I think it's it, it's a very effective and accurate kind of argument. And, and as he acknowledges, and I think his school of thought acknowledges, we're not all good at being hedonists. It's actually really difficult. I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> right? it's really hard. I mean, I mean, we're all motivated by by short term pleasure, but to figure out what is going to cause us to feel deeply gratified and satisfied in the long run is obviously requires a lot of wisdom. It requires near term self sacrifice often. But, but he says that I, I love this line: "It is impossible to live pleasantly." without living prudently, honorably, and justly. And it's impossible to live prudently, honorably, and justly without living pleasantly. So in other words, if you if you live the right way, you're kind and generous and cultivate friendships and take care of people, it is impossible to not live a joyful life, you know, which is, uh, it's kind of an extraordinary statement. It is an extraordinary statement. I've come to believe it's true. Well, as a philosopher, Emily, you must have been amused in the last you know, decade or so by all of the popularity of Greek philosophers, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of strange because I thought I would be retreating into the dusty uh, parts of academia. Then lo and behold, what I do became very popular. Um, it was gratifying, but also very unexpected. 
Well, one of the evangelists, Ryan Holiday, who's, as you may know, is a, has been a tireless evangelist of Stoicism, uh, we had on the show um, last year, and he, he's reached quite a large audience with many books and daily planners and so on, espousing the, the wisdom of Stoicism. And I found it fascinating to read that there's been a kind of sumo wrestling match between Stoicism and Epicureanism for several thousand years. Yeah, they, <laughs> then, they actually right. started at exactly the same time. It's like right. they really are the Cubs and the White Sox or the Yankees and the uh, Mets. So they're like crosstown rivals. So interesting. And and Stoicism, it seems, resolutely won the first round for the first few thousand years. It seems like right, it, it, it's the better known school of thought. And I think that continues to be true today. Your book is 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 working to change that. But I think it could be helpful for listeners to draw some of the contrast between the two philosophies. Do you want to start maybe by telling us what Stoicism is, what, what the Stoicism worldview is? So Stoicism also aimed at happiness, but they thought that the thing that produces happiness is one thing alone, which is virtue. And vice is the only source of unhappiness. All the other things other than virtue and vice are neither good nor bad. So uh, all you need for happiness is virtue. And if you're vicious, you're unhappy. But that means that they think that everything else doesn't actually contribute to your happiness. So let's just say you have a child, that doesn't add to your happiness. If your child dies, that also doesn't take away from your happiness. Um, so they thought the only good thing was virtue. And then everything else that you might think of as good, so whether that's money or your child or a good job, those are indifferent. And, and maybe the biggest differentiator, at least from my reading of your book, is about the importance of friends, right? Which Epicurus said, friends do not merely contribute to one's happiness, they contribute the most. Right. right, which is a, a very again modern point of view. Now backed by a lot of a lot of recent science, that our friendships are maybe the single most important thing to our contentment, reduction of anxiety, all these things. It's all about friendship. And Epicurus was way ahead of his time in seeing this. But the Stoics, in contrast, sort of thought that if you're truly uh, ascetic, if you're a real Stoic, you you don't fundamentally need other people. Right. Well, I mean, as a Stoic, you don't fundamentally need anything. Uh, other than your virtue. And that's why I think it's, I mean, in my mind, it's kind of a non-starter for an, a plausible psychology of human beings. But in the book, I try to argue why I think that that doesn't capture what we want out of friendship. So the Epicureans think that one reason we have friends is that they help us feel secure. And they can help us feel secure in all sorts of ways. But one way they can help us feel secure and one way that you can almost identify who your good friends are, is that you know they'll be there for you when you really need them. And the number of people who report having a friend like that is very small. So people mm -hmm. who won't abandon yeah. them in a time of need. And this uh, Seneca, a Roman Stoic, mocked Epicurus for this and said, mm. you know, Epicurus, he he thinks we we need friends if we're sick or you know, if we need to be bailed out of jail. That's the example he uses. And he says, you know, that's so weak. Um, and a Stoic, you know, a Stoic never needs that. So a Stoic never needs anyone at his bedside or a Stoic never needs anyone to bail him out of jail or rescue him or pay a ransom. And so the natural question comes about, well, why do the Stoics even want friends? Then what, what, why do they have friends if, you know, they don't contribute anything to their happiness? And Seneca says something like, well, there are opportunities to display virtue. 
So uh, friends are just me displaying my virtue to these other people, these people that I would never need. And my thought is uh, the good thing about Epicureanism is it's it's born from mutual vulnerability. And that's what yeah, Stoicism yeah. can't offer. So the Stoic essentially says, you're a really good um, opportunity for me to use my virtue when you're in need, but I kind of need you to understand that I will never technically be in need of you because I can remain just as happy without you. And I, th- I think that's a, a terrifying and cold thought. Even if you know the Stoic isn't going to say that out loud, that's essentially what their theory yes, yes. means. Right. Terrifying and cold and unsustainable. Right, right, because because we are as humans, you know, deeply reliant upon connection with others, support from others. You know, there are just piles and piles of, of research in recent decades addressing the importance of friendship and connection. Maybe the most cited is the Grant study, the Harvard Longevity right, study, that yeah. showed that you know people are living an extra ten years because they have more friends, they have less anxiety, more peace, they're happier. I think that the um, the British government has a minister of loneliness. Yes, and that's right. I, I think the yeah. minister of loneliness is part of the National Health Service. They see it as an epidemic of the sort that actually does diminish your health. Apart from the fact that just people, if you ask them, they, they really want to have friends and they report not having the kind of adult friends that they want. And and the U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy wrote a wonderful book about the loneliness epidemic, which we selected on the Next Big Idea Club and had on the show. But yeah, it's 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 been a it's been a big theme, and 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 it's we're learning a lot more about how how critical friendship and connection is. And again, Epicurus, you know, way ahead of his time. But what's great about the teachings of Epicurus and his followers is that there's a lot of great advice about how to cultivate friendship, how to select friends, and how to be a great friend, effectively, isn't there? Yeah. So, I mean, part of the idea is that we all want friends, but we're just not very good at it. So we're not very good at choosing friends, he thinks. Uh, We choose them for the wrong reasons. And then when we do have good friends, we often don't prioritize them. And so his advice is that we should select our friends in light of who will be there for us, Uh, So they need to be reliable and trustworthy. Um, And then on top of that, of course, you'll enjoy all sorts of things with them. But the bedrock is trust. And if you don't have Mm -hmm. that, if you don't trust that the person will be there in a time of um, distress, then you just shouldn't pursue friendship with that person. And then you need a shared uh, sense of value. And that doesn't mean you, you know, you love the same things (laughs) so that, you know, uh, your friend likes Taylor Swift and you don't, and so you can't be friends. So what matters most is that you you base the friendship in something uh, that's not subject to fortune. So uh, kids all the time, right? And unfortunately, this is true of adults as well. They select their friends on the basis of who will make them more popular, who will make them look better, yeah, um, who's, yeah. who's most likely to be advantageous in business. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if you base a friendship in something like that, then when the person stops being able to deliver that, either through mm-hmm. you know misfortune or circumstance, then the justification for the friendship dissolves. And, and so you can't really have a stable friendship that way because you, you've put the, um, the basis of the friendship out of the control of the person uh, you're friends with. Whereas if you base your friendship in things that you can, you know, you can reliably supply one another, like mutual support and joy, things that are within people's control and not subject to fortune, then your your friendship will be more stable. And so this is one way in which Epicurus really discourages people from pursuing 
volatile things like fame and popularity because they're so unstable. And if you ground your friendships in them, then your friendships will be unstable. A good example of this actually is um, drinking buddies, right? So if you're, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you have a drinking buddy, then the friendship is based around the fact that you both drink together. There might be other things you do, right? But fundamentally, it's that you go to the bars together. And if one or the other person gives up drinking, then the friendship loses its grounding, And if you base your friendship in anything like that, whether it's, you know, popularity or beauty or wealth, those things can be lost or the person can stop caring about them. And Mm -hmm. if they Mm -hmm. if they're lost or they stop caring about them, then the friendship loses its grounding. And so Epicurus thinks if you want these lifelong stable friendships with people who are reliable, then you have to choose reliable people and you have to ground them in things that are stable throughout your life. I love that he's writing this 2,300 years ago. I know. Right? Isn't it amazing? So it, it really is. And, and, and I love this line that you write, close Epicurean friendships are jointly secure attachments enriched by shared joys and a concern for each other's personal growth. At root, the guiding principle of Epicurean friendship is that friends don't make friends anxious. So that's, you know, again, just so ahead of his time, but both in terms of the importance of friendship and connection. And also, we now realize how uh, corrosive anxiety is. Yeah. And if you think about, you know, a lot of the things that make, you know, psychologists will use the term attachment. And what makes an attachment insecure is the worry that the person will abandon you. And so what makes an attachment solid is if you, you know, you feel that you can depend on the person um, so that you can be independent of them, but also when you need them, they're going to be there for you. Well, Epicurus claims that a friend will even suffer death to avoid betraying a friend because we lose not only the confidence of our friend, but also of our community. This strikes me as a little a little severe. I would say if any of my <laughs> friends are listening, I don't expect you to die for me. That's not necessary. <laughs> but maybe there's some, circum- some dramatic circumstances that Epicurus had in mind there. I think, I mean, in some sense, he probably did focus on these dramatic circumstances. But, you know, you might think... People who turn traitor uh, rather than die, Mm. that's pretty bad. So I think you get a lot of that. It's, I mean, I think the resolve or the resiliency is very, it's minted in rare coin. I don't think most people can die rather than sell out their values. But there's a dialogue or a famous piece by Plato called uh, The Apology. And in it, Socrates says that he would rather die than give up philosophy. And I asked my students, uh, so if if someone said die or stop being a philosopher, uh, wh- what would you do? <laughs> they, you know, they'd take a sudden interest in economics or something like that. But then, <laughs> but then yeah. I tell them, you know, you should yeah. figure out what it is you would die for mm. Um, mm. so yeah. that you couldn't live with yourself if you abandoned that thing. And I think that Epicurus, from his perspective, right, there are some things that are so important to us that if we didn't, if we didn't follow through on them, we couldn't live with ourselves. Um, And that may just be my impression is a lot of people would die for their children. And so it would be rare. And it would, you know, it would have to be a remarkably close friend. But there are people who will die for the people they truly love. Absolutely. Absolutely, but now, yeah, not normal. You know, like not for the the DoorDash delivery guy, or yeah, well, yeah, we'll hope we'll hope it doesn't come up. But yes, no, I I do think that that's it's a beautiful description of of friendship and what it can, what we will do for one another.
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Let's talk about the three types of desires, uh, which are so interesting. Uh, you, you break out necessary desires, extravagant desires, corrosive desires, uh, which I think is your renaming of Epicurus's uh, yes. three, three desires, right? Yeah, so Epicurus... Um, I really like Epicurus, but Cicero is right that his um, his prose is difficult, <laughs> and so he he called these three classes of desires natural and necessary, natural and unnecessary, and unnatural and unnecessary. And there's really no way you can write a book <laughs> and keep using all those unnatural and unnecessaries over and over again. And I think it, it's actually just very difficult shorthand. So what I ended up doing is calling them necessary, extravagant, and corrosive. So one thing that I like about Epicurus that differentiates him from the Stoics is that he thinks that some things are necessary for happiness, some you know material possessions. And so he thinks that we have some desires as human beings that we have to satisfy. So for food and drink and shelter, but also he um, he thinks we need friends. So friends are actually necessary for um, well-being. Yep. And he thinks we also need a working knowledge of science that keeps us from falling prey to superstition. So um, some of these things we're accustomed to thinking of as necessary, like food and drink, because we'll die without them. But other things are features of Epicureanism, like friendship. But he thinks we need those things in order to be happy. So that's a big difference between him and the Stoics, who think, for instance, again, that you don't need friends. And then there's this second class of desires, which is where all the good, interesting stuff happens in Epicureanism. And they're called the extravagant desires. And uh, these are kind of fancier versions of necessary desires, like instead of uh, water, you might want a, a nice IPA, or instead of just regular food, you might want a really tasty sandwich. And Epicurus thinks these things can really deepen the joy in our lives, but they're not strictly necessary for our well-being, mm, yeah. which is not to say that they're not desirable and that we shouldn't enjoy them, but we shouldn't let them distract us from what's necessary, right? So you wouldn't want to pursue a tasty sandwich if it meant, you know, neglecting your children. And so these extravagances, we're allowed to want them as long as they don't cause us a lot of anxiety or effort or distract from necessary things, as long as we don't take them to be necessary for our happiness. And, and they also, he also points out that those who least need extravagance enjoy it most. I think which that's I, true. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great observation, right? Because it's just, it's lost on you at some point. If you eat, if you only eat in five-star restaurants, it's no longer novel. You stop appreciating it, right? That uh, it's the scarcity of extravagant experiences that makes them something that we relish, right? We, I think it's a great observation. Yeah, it's great. I So my advisor in graduate school was a, like a serious foodie. He went to very nice restaurants very often. And I, I grew up in Arkansas. I had very little sort of cultural experience before I went to graduate school. 
And at one point, his dining partner for this fancy restaurant in D.C. bowed out. He had, he was sick. And so my advisor asked me to go along. And we, we went to this very fancy restaurant in D.C. And it was clear that he wanted to do the tasting menu. And I didn't even know what a tasting menu was. And it was we were there for three hours or maybe four. And it was the <laughs> yeah. first time I had actually had a very like a sustained conversation with my advisor and gotten to know him. And the food was amazing. And there were all these utensils on the table. I didn't even know what they were. Like, who knew there was a yeah. fish spoon? I'm like, oh, what is this spoon? And I think that the fact that I really haven't had a meal like that since then makes it very memorable. And I would never say, oh, don't go to a fancy restaurant where you spend an insane amount of money on a tasting menu. When you do it, and if you have the money and it doesn't take away from necessary things, it can be the most memorable experience you have. But yeah, if I ate tasting menu in D.C., every day, then there would be nothing remarkable about it. And it'd be hard to grade all your papers, I think. It's well, true. <laughs> I would, yeah, I, it would be really hard to pay my bills. So we've covered necessary desires, extravagant desires, and then the third is corrosive desires. Right. So the first two, the necessary desires, you have to fulfill them. You need to prioritize them. The extravagant ones, they're great, and they actually deepen and enrich your life. But the corrosive ones, they have to go. And interestingly, some of the corrosive desires are for things that would otherwise be okay if you didn't have the wrong attitude towards them. So Corrosive desires, the easiest way to think of them are when people think that there's something you can't have too much of. So, you know, you can never be too rich. You can never be too profitable. Uh, you can never be too popular, have too many clicks, too many likes. Um, and when that's true, there's a kind of weird result of that, which is that you can never satisfy a desire like that because there's always more. So you, you can't satisfy something if it's better to have more of it. And so Epicurus thinks that these corrosive desires in themselves, they can't be satisfied because uh, there's always more to want. But then also when you prioritize them, uh, they take a lot of effort that you should be using on your friendships, honestly. And then uh, they are really competitive. And so they alienate you from other people and they leave you subject to envy and competition and comparison with one another. And so, for instance, while he'll think money is okay up until what he calls the natural limit, um, once you go past that and you start wanting more and more and more, that's a recipe for dissatisfaction and also um, for alienating you from the things that are really important. And so he thinks the corrosive desires, you just need to get rid of them. And generally, we can we can tell that we're in the grip of one because we think more would be better. And what's fascinating about corrosive desires to me on the Epicurean model is he doesn't think they're just easy to get rid of. Like you just think like, yeah. oh, well, uh, I'll wake up tomorrow and not be greedy. Yeah, I think yeah. he thinks they're, they have such a powerful allure for us that we do have to kind of constantly remind ourselves that they're not what we need. And I think that's one of the interesting things about him. And I think it's a little bit like a visual illusion. So uh, when I, when we look at a a stick in water, it looks bent, right? And even when we know mm, it's not bent, yeah. it looks that way and it can continue to look that way. <laughs> and so I think that he thinks that, um, you know, stuff like greed is like that. It can constantly look good. And we have to say, oh, but it's not. <laughs> it's actually not. I need to, I need to stop thinking of those things that way because it's, it's not really that way and it's not advantageous for me, but it doesn't mean that you don't consistently feel the pull of those things. It's just you use your brain to compensate for the illusion that they're good. 
And this notion that we should starve our corrosive desires, that we should shut them down, that we should really not indulge them, is I would say today in American culture, a relatively radical position, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> there's a, a certain a certain amount of celebration of corrosive desires, right? And, and in American culture. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess Epicurus is okay being countercultural. You know, it's not like he thinks like you shouldn't even want nice things. Um, it's just that there's this way that you can treat them, whether they're competitive or comparative or something along those lines that is unhealthy. And there is a sense in which what he says is the equivalent of starving them. But one other term he uses a lot that I think kind of fits better is to limit them, right? To put a limit okay. on them. Because yeah. what what is a problem is, you know, when you say something like there's never too much, then you've refused to put a limit on it. Whereas if you say, oh no, this is enough <laughs> right here. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Or now that I have this, anything else doesn't matter. Yes. And you actually quote Gordon Gecko from <laughs> Wall Street, right? I, I think we have the clip. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. It is amazing, especially, I mean, it's just everybody goes wild at the end of it. Like, yes, green is good. <laughs> right, right. And it feels a little dated. I don't know if that was in the 80s or 90s, but still it is an undercurrent of our American culture for sure. And I love, I love your line, greed is inconsistent with satisfaction. If we would like to be satisfied, an appetite forevermore is a way to be certain that we will not be satisfied. Exactly. I mean, just think about how many songs there are about satisfaction and how many of them are about not being satisfied. And amazingly, almost all of them are about getting a lot of stuff you wanted and still not being satisfied. Right. And written often by very wealthy and famous oh, rock yes, stars. Very much. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the Rolling Stones and uh, any number of others, right? Yeah. I love Epicurus's observation that the necessary desires are actually pretty accessible to all of us. Now, of course, it must be said that we're talking about food, shelter, friendship, and some degree of, of, of scientific knowledge that can empower us to make good decisions effectively, right? Right. Um, and uh, you know, it should be said that there's a lot of inequality in the world, and there are many people, uh, even in wealthy countries, who don't have their necessary desires met. But most of us in wealthier countries anyway, can get these basic food, shelter, friendship needs met. And I, I, it's so empowering to realize, if you agree with Epicurus, that all of the joy and pleasure, or the vast majority of the joy and pleasure that's available to us is available if you just have those necessary desires met. And I know in my own life, Emily, I... I've been a, a relatively uh, risk-tolerant entrepreneur for a few decades and taken a lot of risks. And my mother was always just astonished that I would take these risks. And I just said, Mom, you know, I just know that if everything goes wrong and I lose everything, I, I can just get a job pouring coffee 
in a coffee shop and have a stack of books at home to read and some friends, and I'll be very happy. <laughs> you no, know? I like actually, I, just... I think that's right. And, and in fact, I think that is what helps make sense of, you know, some people think that Epicurus can't make sense of ambition. Right? So that yes. um, sort of these things that we try to do that are uncertain often give us anxiety. And if Epicurus is opposed to anxiety, then surely he's supposed to be opposed to ambition. But I think the way you're describing it is much more like how he thinks of it, right? Which is this idea that I know that I have what I need and that I can be happy with what is accessible to me if that's the way it turns out. Um, and then I think you are allowed to take a, a, whole, a lot of risks if you do it with the right attitude and you don't you know, make, I, 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 I'm not going to ask you whether you made any great moral compromises in your entrepreneurial uh, endeavors, but I think he thinks that we can choose all sorts of things and uh, fail at them as long as we know that we have what we need. And those things are, you know, friends and the ability to, you know, have leisure to read books occasionally. And, and there's no reason to think you couldn't do that while being a barista. In fact, it, sometimes that's the easiest yeah, uh, yeah, set up for yeah, doing it. Yeah. Well, and 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 it seems that he's pointing out with these three types of desires that it's precisely when we give up any of these necessary desires for the extravagant or corrosive desires that we err. Yes. Right. Uh, and so the most common example would be very ambitious people who end up not spending the time with their children and families and friends that later in their lives they wish that they had. And I think this is this this has to be high on the list of sort of deathbed regrets. Oh, right? it's got to be so high. I remember, Emily, when I was a, in my early mid-20s living in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, working as a young book editor at August House Publishers, that I, I remember thinking I could become so wise that I would not need to be successful uh, and, and impress my peers and, 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 you know, and attain status. But my conclusion at the time was, I think that would take me about 20 years if I figured it out. And I think I could find a way to be successful, quote unquote, uh, or adequately successful in 15. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I basically, my, my younger me basically concluded like, Yes, I know that the wise thing to do is to not have a need to prove myself and be ambitious in these ways, but that strikes me as, to some degree, more difficult to become that wise than it would be to uh, distinguish myself in some fashion to some degree. But I do think this is a tough one, right? Because as you know, we had Will Storr on the show talking about the human need for status, uh, which is something that we see in all cultures all over the world throughout all of history, he would argue. So there's an argument that this need to be valued by our communities, and part of how we're valued is by doing good works that create value. That's a deep primal need that maybe redounds to everybody's benefit in the end. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, one thing that's kind of funny to me is that I'm 44 and I could not have written this book when I was younger for a number of reasons. And so I do think, you know, maybe some of these things take time to arrive at whatever, you know, approximate wisdom we're going to have. Because I do think that there's a sense in which our culture and even maybe our evolutionary impulses make us want to distinguish ourselves as better than other people or to be admired or to have a certain kind of status that uh, puts us head and shoulders above other people. And so I think that's a little bit like with the question about money, which is that it can 
you know, it just looks good. It just seems really desirable. And, and we tend to think that we can get it without compromising things of greater value. And then that's often just the mistake that we make, right? It's an Epicurean calculation error to think, oh, we can have that thing and not lose the things that we care about more. And it's, it's a hard realization. And some people can balance it, right? Some people can accomplish meaningful tasks and not compromise their core values or sacrifice their relationships or feel cheap and dirty at the end of the day. And uh, those people kind of won the lottery, I guess. So I do think that it's true that we want a certain kind of status. And then the question is, and I think this is what I, I took away from the store art, uh, interview that you did, the store interview, is that we're all going to play the status game but we can play it on our own terms. And as he put it, he thought that the way to kind of approach it most effectively in the end was to aim for, I think his three words were warmth, sincerity, and competency. Yes, and yes. and that if, if essentially who wouldn't want to be friends with someone like that or respect someone like that? And and I think that Epicurus would say, yeah, all, all for the better, right? Those are things that are within reach. They're not effortless. Right, you do have to develop a competency, and it's hard to be sincere and warm. But I think if you can play the status game and do that, then Epicurus is totally okay with the status game because I think that's what an Epicurean community is like. One of the conclusions that I came to in, in the conversation with Will Store about status, our human need for status, was that actually the status that we get in a circle of friends who value us as a human being and know us deeply is all the status you need and the best kind of status because it's it's the least uh, vulnerable to the fickleness of the world, right? And, and this is part of Epicurus's point, I believe, right? Is that, that to really truly experience tranquility and low anxiety, which naturally leads to a joyful pleasure that we take in life and, and, and our interactions with other people, we need a foundation of low anxiety and tranquility, which again, friends help to make possible. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think all that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think, you know, you, you can also have, you can share among friends sometimes a shared sense of ambition and desire to make an impact on the world, uh, you know, which is another sort of layer, right. which gets us into the question of the cost of wealth, which you actually asked me in a nice way, or were polite enough not to ask me, which is in, in building a series of companies, have I been less than virtuous? <laughs> <laughs> mean and, less than virtuous. I meant like uh, sell your soul or something yeah, much no, worse no. than that. I mean, I, I would certainly say that in, in 25 years of, of building companies, sometimes in my 20s and 30s, I do feel like I've made some decisions that I would not make now that were expedient and did not, uh, were, were more about accomplishing the goal opposed to making the product or the service or a, as good as it could possibly be for everybody. So I, I, I do feel that way. And I think this is part of a, another kind of uh, maybe somewhat controversial claim by Epicurus or in your book, which is that it's almost impossible to make a lot of money without engaging in wicked deeds of some kind, <laughs> well, right? Is that... I, he doesn't say it's impossible, but he says it's very difficult. And and I think that's kind of true. I mean, to become... I'm, we're not talking about you know financially secure. We're talking like filthy rich. And I think that the idea is something like if, if there's some one value you privilege over everything else, whether that's like profit or you know more money, then 
you're going to throw whatever other competing value is out there under the bus. So if you say the only thing that matters is profit, then you're going to get that by hook or by crook. And you know, I think there's something to be said for the fact that you can't you can't get that without screwing people over. And so he does think that there are ways you can get it that are, in fact, perfectly ethical. It's just that for the most part, getting a lot of wealth is it's difficult <laughs> to get without cheating or jockeying for power in unseemly ways. If and when a friend engages in such behavior, the best response might be frank speech, <laughs> uh, which is a, a wonderful section of the book addresses how to speak frankly with with people and also assessing what people we should speak frankly and honestly with. And when we when we talk about frank speech, I think of a sort of more modern term of radical candor, as Ken right. Scott framed it, right? But uh, this is a, another section where it, it felt to me like Epicurus and his followers, it felt very modern in, in the way that they were analyzing the nuances of what degree of kind of tough love honesty was wise and prudent and useful and what was ineffective and counterproductive. Yeah, I think this was one of my favorite parts of the book to write um, because I think that um, there are a couple of things that are interesting about it. One is that it doesn't make any sense if you're a hedonist to cause people pain unless there's a benefit, right? So if you're just going around telling people what you think of them and it causes them pain and it doesn't benefit them, then you're actually, you know, it's not good hedonistic calculus. And then I think he also thinks that, you know, all of us, when we're criticized, we feel pain. It's just a natural thing. And so if we're going to talk to one another about our weaknesses, we need to keep in mind always that it's painful. And so whenever we do it, it has to be for a good reason. And it has to be with some hope that it will actually produce a benefit. Another thing that's interesting is that the Epicureans tended to think that this happens really only in friendships or relationships with people you know. And so frank speech on the internet is that's not going to happen as an Epicurean because it's with strangers. And then you're supposed to focus on things that can actually change. The Epicureans, again, because they are such good natural scientists, think that we have these predispositions and tendencies, and then also sometimes just results of our, our upbringing or our experiences that make us not perfect. And that part of being a friend is to see which ones of those things actually matter and which ones don't, uh, and which ones need to change and which ones can, right? So it would be, I have a friend who, it would be ridiculous for me to think I could convince her to not be late to things, right? That's just not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's just something you don't, you know, you don't, you don't bring up. And so it is, yeah. I, they think of it as an art. So it's uh, something you get better at and that you can do badly. And I do think that there's something interesting about it because the the people I talk to who um, work with, you know, in business schools, they're constantly trying to figure out how to give feedback that doesn't destroy their employees. Yes. Um, and and so because these conversations are so fraught with challenges, people just don't have them. But if the only way to improve is to have them, then we really have to figure out how. And so part of that is choosing what we need to actually help people improve on and doing it in a safe environment, in a relationship where people have some investment in the relationship continuing. So it's not to score points, it's to actually help people work through things that right. will make their life better. Right. And I think right. that often we think of frank speech as you know, something entirely different than that. And so that's why I like the Epicurean account of it. 
Yes. And, and right. And, and I think part of his view, right, was that tranquility is impossible without acknowledging all our faults, that, that we do need to be on a journey of discovering our faults and accepting our faults. And that's a collaborative journey with others, which, again, feels very kind of contemporary. Before we get back to the show, I want to play you a quick clip from Emily's book bite. That's the audio summary of the book she created exclusively for the Next Big Idea app. Epicurus thinks corrosive desires rip at our well-being for a number of reasons. But the main problem is that they simply cannot be satisfied. There is always more to be wanted, stretching forever into the future, more and more and more. To put it succinctly, greed is inconsistent with satisfaction and tranquility is a form of satisfaction. When I listened to that line as I was strolling through the vegetable aisle in Whole Foods, I literally stopped, tapped back 15 seconds, and wrote this down. Greed is inconsistent with satisfaction, and tranquility is a form of satisfaction. I thought about this for the next day, shared it with a few friends, and then called up Emily and asked if she would join us as a guest on this podcast. You see, we use the Next Big Idea app, too. We use it to discover the very best new books. Some are by famous authors, others less so. But they're all books that might cause you to stop in the vegetable aisle, write something down, and share it with a friend. So try it for yourself. Stop this podcast. Don't worry, we'll wait for you. And search for Next Big Idea in your app store. Download the app and start listening to a new book every day whenever you have a spare 15 minutes. I find it extraordinary that more than 2,300 years ago, Epicurus concluded that an understanding of science is essential to protect us from a dangerous belief in superstitions and so on, right? Because to our modern minds, right, their understanding of science was quite limited. And how could it not be, right? Because they didn't have the tools of science. They didn't even have sort of the, the scientific method as we think about it today. But at the same time, you know, uh, I was astonished reading your book to find out how accurate on so many fronts Epicurus's assessment of our physical reality was. You're right. Epicurean science was just centuries, uh, thousands of years ahead of its time. So he thought that the world was made up of atoms and void. He thought that the world was not created by a divine being, that the, the universe uh, is eternal and that our world came into being uh, or into existence through the motion of atoms, mostly uh, regular causation with the occasional spontaneous motion. And so he he's very different than, and this is one way in which he's very different than the, the Stoics. This is a massive difference between them. So the Stoics thought that the universe was created by a divine being for the benefit of human beings. And so we lived in a providential universe where things happen for the good, for the Stoics. And so if something bad happens to you, that was part of a design that um, God set in motion when God created the universe. And this is one of those things that modern Stoics really either try to sweep under the rug or don't quite know how to deal with, because it affects a lot about how the Stoics think about misfortune and suffering. But for 
Epicurus, we live in a, a materialistic, physicalist world. That's, you know, the motion of atoms and happenstance has led animals like us to be here with the kind of capacities that we have. And, and this also informed his confidence in addressing death in saying that, you know what, our sentient experience arises from uh, our experience as physical animals. And when we stop moving and, and, and stop being alive, we're no longer sentient. And it was not unpleasant not to exist before we were born, and it will not be unpleasant <laughs> to, to not exist after we die. And so there's no reason to fear it, which, which was astonishing to me to read because that's exactly what I said when my then you know 10-year-old son had asked me how I felt about death and the fear of death. And I said, well, before you were alive, did it hurt? <laughs> He said, no. And I said, well, you know, after you're gone, after I'm gone, it won't hurt either. And we have, this is the time that we have. And let's use this time to live the most beautiful lives that we can. Right. And, and that's, I think, yeah, and where I think, Epicurus landed. I think you know? that second point is really important to make clear with Epicureanism too. Right? So sometimes people will take that one argument about how since non-existence is neither painful nor pleasant, then it can't be good or bad for us. And so we shouldn't fear something that's neither good nor bad for us. So why fear non-existence? And, and there's a sense in which there are lots of other reasons we fear death, right? So not just because we won't exist, but because, you know, we won't get to have certain kinds of experiences, or we definitely fear and grieve the death of others. And so Epicurus has tools for making sense of all of those different kinds of fears. But one of the main ones is the one you just mentioned, which is that um, if you take a lot of joy in your daily existence, then you reach a point, Epicurus thinks, where you prize each day and you don't need the next one. The next one is sort of like a bonus, right? So, and if, if you see it that way, then each day is kind of um, an extravagance. So sort of like, I think he says something like the person who least needs tomorrow goes happiest to meet it. And so if you focus on having these really great experiences and living, for lack of a better phrase, living your best life, then you do have the sense that I make the joke that like I've had a good run, right? So this is this has been a really good life. And if you can have that sense all the time and, and focus on the joys in life, then I think it does help get rid of that idea that you need more and more life, just like, you know, you don't need necessarily more and more money. The desire for limitless life, I think, for Epicurus is corrosive because it makes you think that this life is never enough, that what you've done is never enough. And he doesn't think that's healthy because you can never have a satisfied life if you think I always have to have more. And I think this is one of those things that is just really hard for a lot of people to come to grips with. I think the idea that uh, more life is always better life is something that mm, we're told yeah, a lot. Yeah, and yeah. and in some sense, Epicurus thinks that under certain circumstances, that's, you know, when it happens, it's great and you should enjoy it. But the idea that it will come to an end and that we need to recognize that it comes to an end and that that should set our priorities in living, I think that's a good lesson for people to learn, even if it's an uncomfortable one. My wife is very nervous on airplanes, Emily, oh, and, and, yeah. and I'm, I, am too. I can get I can get nervous on airplanes too, and particularly if there's you know some turbulence. But what I've said to her is, my strategy is just to make peace with the possibility that this is it. <laughs> no, I mean it's, it's right, morbid, and I'll just say, effective. And so I'll sit there as the plane is rattling and just say to myself, you know what? It has been a great run. I'm so grateful to have had the life I've had. 
And then when we touch down, I'm like, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a whole nother, whole nother shot here, you know? No, I really do use that phrase with myself. I've had a good run. And there's this other feature of Epicureanism that I, I find really excellent which is this idea that one of the things about human beings that are so so distinctive is that we have vivid memories. Um, and yes. uh, so the Epicureans thought that one of the most important things we can do, especially for dealing with misfortune, but just for living our lives, is to make as many memories as we can of a joyful sort. And they can be very small, right? So it can be the time you had a great conversation yes, about yes. death with your kid while eating ice cream, you know, <laughs> whatever whatever yeah, it is, yeah. these memories that we have, we we store them up in a library and there we can always play them, right? We can take them down from the shelves and reflect on them. And that the more joys you have like this, the more memories you have. And um, he he thought that this was one of the best ways to deal with misfortune, because unlike the Stoics, right, uh, the Epicureans can't say that misfortune is part of God's divine plan, right? Misfortune is something that can happen to us for no reason and for no purpose. And that doesn't mean that it will keep us from ever having joy again, but it does mean that we need some strategies for dealing with it. And one of the best ones for Epicurus is to reflect on all these joyful memories that we have. Once you focus on finding these joys and these memorable joys, then you live each day really well. And then you have this accumulation that helps you remember why life is good and why it will continue to be good even when you face misfortune. I find that a really meaningful part of Epicureanism. My partner, when he was 22, I think, he was shot uh, with an arrow from a compound bow uh, in the gut. And so he he was very lucky to survive. And he he was in hospital for two weeks. And when we first met, he told me the story. And he said that when he was there, he realized that the only thing that he could really do was play his memories to himself, that he was reflecting on all the good things in his life. And he decided that um, he was going to trade money for time and experiences. And, you know, there are some ups, <laughs> there's some costs to that, uh, but there are a lot of benefits. And and so he just thought, you know, if I find myself in this situation again, like in a nursing home when I'm old, I want to be able to replay good things. And I thought, wow, how Epicurean. And I think that's, I think that's really important. Yes, yes, and I and I love this notion that time with friends is a is a gift that you're giving each other of memory production. Yeah, that exactly. Will, that pays out not just in the moment, but in the future as we replay these memories. And I will replay Emily my memory of this conversation because I've so enjoyed it. What a wonderful book and what a what a great conversation. So thank you for for being with us today. Yeah, this was a blast, Rufus. It's good to meet you. And also, I guess uh, we were both in Little Rock at the same time. Who knew? I know, I know. What a small world, right? <laughs> that was Emily Austin, author of Living for Pleasure, an Epicurean Guide to Life. To hear Emily summarize the book's five key insights in just 15 minutes and 34 seconds, download the Next Big Idea app and search for Emily's book bite. And while you're there, you can hear hundreds of other book summaries read by the authors themselves, a new one every day, like the ones for Anna Lemke's Dopamine Nation and Paul Bloom's The Sweet Spot, two of my favorites. All you have to do is go to your app store and download the Next Big Idea app right now. If you enjoy this show, suggest it to a friend, ideally one who doesn't make you anxious. Send them a text or an email 
slip into their DMs, we're always grateful to reach new listeners. Today's episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Sound designed by Mike Toda. It gives us Epicurean-style pleasure to collaborate with the team at the LinkedIn Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.